0: You're listening to Christianity 101, a Sunday school series taught by the elders and deacons of Maple City Baptist Church in Chatham, Ontario. For more information about Maple City, please visit us online at maplecitybaptistchurch.com. Hey, good morning, guys. Good morning. As you can see, we're talking about hell this morning. Pretty light topic for the morning. So get comfortable. We got lots to cover. So, I have a bit of a confession to make before we start. As I was thinking about this and reading about it, I had the preconceived notion that basically almost everybody thought about the same about hell. So, of course, there are the people that believe in hell, believers, and those that do not, the unbelievers, and pretty much that was about it. But it's pretty ignorant, actually, because there's lots in the middle about people uh, believing different aspects of hell. Um, So much so that C.S. Lewis said that there's no doctrine which I would more... Willingly removed from Christianity Than the doctrine of hell So pretty weighty um, Lots of information In the scripture And lots of thoughts and opinions on hell So um, I was talking to Andrew Actually yesterday And uh, I said to him Um, One of the things that I find hardest being up here Is that talking to all of you guys Is talking to uh, so many more people That are much smarter, much wiser And know way more than I do um, About this topic or any topic Um, So I want to ask you then um, Basically what are your thoughts about the afterlife And consequently what are your thoughts about hell I don't want to go there. <laughs> <laughs> the moment you die, those that are unbelievers go to hell. Okay. Good. Good. It's a terrible place. Terrible place. Yeah. Good. Would you mm-hmm. want anybody to go there? Yeah. Exactly. You're exactly right. Yeah. Completely agree. It's utter darkness. Utter darkness. Hot. It's utter darkness. Okay. And it's isolation from God. Yes. Yeah. yeah. No, Eternal separation. Yeah. Mm-hmm any other ones? How, how come, why Why do we think the way do we, we do? Something we grew up, or something we heard? God's Word. God's Word, yeah. Good. Yeah, those Um. the answers I was expecting for the majority of the room. Um, something is really interesting, where as we flip the question around, and we think to ourselves, uh, if we were to approach someone that doesn't believe in hell at all, and we ask the question to them, why do you reject hell? Why do you completely reject the idea of an afterlife? And the person says to us, I don't know, I just don't believe it. Well, to us, it seems like a pretty weighty topic. How can you approach it and say, oh, I just, I don't know, I just don't really understand it. I just don't really believe in it. Well, we would think to ourselves that that seems kind of ridiculous. How can you believe something about such a weighty topic that you really haven't done any study or investigation about? Well, so I've kind of sided myself with what Ken has said in the past, is why study something that when it really just happens anyway, and why, why, do, we, why do we need to know about something when it really it's, it's going to happen anyway? Well... Um As we go through this We're going to see a couple different purposes And one Being we want to biblically understand hell Of course that's extremely important The second Is driving our gospel passion so once we know and understand more about health from a biblical perspective it drives our passion to share the gospel more and then finally uh, we can go through all of the the facts go through all of what the bible says about this go through what jesus said about it but all of it really doesn't matter if it doesn't change us at all so ultimately it's to be changed through christ (laughs) So, for the first thing, we're going to start with an eternal perspective. So, we're going to start very high level, we're going to start with the afterlife, and we're going to funnel down to, ultimately, we want to be changed. So, from an eternal perspective, we can see in Ecclesiastes 3.11 that God's planted eternity in every heart. I'm going to read from that passage. He hath made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he hath set eternity in their heart, yet so that man cannot find out the work that God hath done from the beginning even to the end. So we see right from the beginning in Ecclesiastes. That God's put this sense of eternity in our heart. He's put this sense that there's something more to this life than basically just living. And we see that all around, right? We see people striving for a purpose. Um, we see lots of different books um, about striving through life for, with a purpose. And a lot of them aren't inherently bad. It's good to have a purpose in life. But from an eternal perspective. Um, we have much more of a purpose than uh, just striving to save orphans in Africa or uh, striving to bring clean water to third world countries. Those are great things, and it's certainly great to be driven toward those things. But ultimately, from an internal perspective, we have so much more of a purpose than that. So we continue through life. We continue settling and struggling to find things that are going to satisfy us and to find. Uh, ways that we can feel that we have a purpose. Um and ultimately we're we're driven by our sinful desires, right? Um you know of course we have uh you know, we have great aspirations of great moral things that we feel driven by, but uh often we are driven unfortunately by our sinful desires as well. And we see this even from Paul, right? The great apostle Paul, who did so many wonderful things for Christ. Um Let's consider what he said in Romans. Um, I'm just going to read the passage, and we've we've all heard this passage so many times. Um, but I really love the struggle and the honesty that Paul has with us. For what I am doing, I do not understand. For what I will to do, that I do not practice. But what I hate, that I do. If then I do what I will not to do... I agree with the law that it is good, but now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good I do not find. For the good that I will to do, I do not do, but the evil I will not to do, that I practice. Now if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. so that seems like a lot of words packed together and trying to figure out what Paul says. Paul's saying, "Hey, I really want to do the good things that i 'm supposed to be doing, but I somehow just find myself not doing them. I really want to practice things i 'm supposed to do." But I find myself not doing them. I keep doing the opposite of what I'm supposed to be doing. And Paul just, he's so honest in his, in his expression of this. So he's trying to do the right thing, but too often he's thwarted by his own sin. So I can kind of relate to this, um, in many ways, but specifically, um, last night I was, uh, I was at work studying for this. I like to go to, um, my work in the evening. It's, it's, uh, It's empty. It's quiet. I have two monitors I can work on. And, um, and as I'm sitting there studying, it's relatively late. There's a, our security guard is taking his rounds. And, um, as I'm sitting there studying, he walks past my desk. Says, I say hi to him. He says hi to me. And the first thought that pops in my mind is, should I tell him what I'm working on? Because if I tell him what I'm working on Then I might get into a lengthy discussion I might have to, sp- to Share the gospel with him yeah. It would be long I really don't have the time for this I'm studying for a Sunday school lesson on hell <laughs> <laughs> So this is this, Like this, this set of thoughts Went through my brain As I'm watching him approach me <laughs> So he did he he walked by and I I started I told him I was working on a Sunday school lesson on hell for what I was doing in the morning uh, the next morning being this morning and he said, "Really?" He's like, "So what do you believe?" And again in my head, my eye my eyes roll and I'm like uh, well, I kind of believe in hell, blah, 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 and kind of mutter off. But then we got into a long, lengthy discussion on hell, and I was able to share the gospel with him. Um, and uh, we talked for a long time about different views and what he believed. And he walked away a while later, and um, I text Sam what just happened and my thoughts. And how terrible is that, that I thought I was so busy, way too busy to focus on what I was doing, um, to share the gospel. Um, ultimately, our, our, purpose is to share the gospel, right? And, and change the world for Him. But I thought I was so busy that I couldn't do that at that, at that very specific time that God brought that opportunity into my life. Um, but how terrible is that, right? And, uh, I know it happens to me quite often that it seems like God gives us the opportunities but we're just too busy to to even acknowledge them. So I understand here what Paul is saying when he's like, I want to do what I'm supposed to do but I, I just keep doing the wrong thing. So ultimately it's sin that drives us away from our eternal focus on Christ. C.S. Lewis, C.S. Lewis he says so many things on hell, it's really fascinating. But this um this quote here, it's from a fictional set of letters that he wrote called the screw tape letters. Not sure if you're familiar with that. What it is is actually C. S. Lewis writing about screw tape which is a um, a, de- a demon in hell, ultimately, who's writing to his nephew, Wormwood, who is a tempter on earth. And so what he says to his protege, his nephew protege, is indeed the safest road to hell is a gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. He's saying, hey, this road to hell, you know, ultimately it's a, it can be a pretty easy one. Um, Eventually, we find ourselves going down the slope of sin. We're driven by our sin. Uh, Eventually, we're in hell, wondering how we got here. But without an eternal focus on Christ, it's easy to get to the wrong place. Justin, just some examples of that. I mean, you think about people's greed and where that leads. You think about lust and where that leads right? And it looks attractive, right? It looks so attractive. Yeah, you're exactly right, and we're going to get into later, but basically the fact that Christ uh, talks to us about just trying to avoid sin, how much more important it is that uh, we self-inflict, maim ourselves, than even getting to hell eventually, but very good point. So first thing we're going to do is... um, Look at Jesus' teaching when we approach on what He said, and as it was said at the beginning, um, you know we believe this because the Bible said it. Um, quite often, if when that phrase is said, I think to myself, "Well, that's really great that the Bible says this, but um, what, I don't really. What if you don't believe in the Bible, right? You talk to so many people that don't believe in the Bible. How do we even?" How do we approach somebody about hell being real if they don't first believe in the Bible? So this isn't a lesson on an apology of the Bible, um, a um, proving of the Bible being real. Um, but what I just want to touch on really quickly is uh, the case of how we know that Jesus' teaching came to be real. Um, ultimately... If we're talking to someone who doesn't know Christ, uh, we can present to them that the Gospels is um, not just a set of uh, books in the Bible, but it's also um, a proven historical record of Jesus Christ. So, if we look at the Gospels as a, a record of history, of proven history... Uh, we can look at Jesus' teachings um, and his authority as being completely genuine. So it's a way that you can approach the question of, hey, I don't really believe in the Bible. How can I believe in hell or believe in what Jesus is teaching? Um, But we can look at the Gospels as as an accurate historical record of what Jesus has done and what he has taught. Um, And if we approach that from that perspective, uh, we can trust what Jesus has said about hell. So, what he said is basically three different... I've broken it down to three different attributes. Is The first being that hell is a place of punishment after judgment. So, I have a barrage of scripture I'm going to blow through. You don't have to turn to all of them. Um, But I'm going to read them pretty high level, give you the context around it, and then we'll move on to each different aspect. So, the first, hell being a place of punishment after judgment. Matthew twenty five forty one. 41. Uh, the scene here is that of Judgment Day when all the nations are gathered around the throne. He says, Then he will also to say to those on the left hand, Depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire prepared for the devils and his angels. And we're going to come back to this verse later um, when we talk about uh, the third aspect of hell. Um, but what I want you to see here is that the scene is that of judgment day. So hell being a place of punishment after judgment, uh, God ultimately giving judgment here um, and throwing the curse into the everlasting fire. Matthew 5.22 But I say to you, who that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment and whoever says to his brother rakah shall be in danger of the council but whoever says you fool shall be in danger of hell fire. So we see again here, the scene is that of almost like, a, think of it like a courtroom. So somebody is being judged. In this case, uh, we're looking at a person who, um, who has been uh, adverse towards his brother. Um, and ultimately, uh, we end with, uh, you fool. Um, after someone says, you fool, so be in danger of hellfire. So again, seeing that hell being a punishment after judging Matthew twenty three thirty three, Serpents, brood of vipers How can you escape the condemnation of hell? And in this passage It's one of these times where Jesus is looking at the Pharisees And is really, really strong in his language And his description of the Pharisees Calling them serpents, brood of vipers How can you escape the condemnation Or the judgment of hell? Again, we're seeing hell As a place of punishment After judgment so just from these three different passages of scriptures, we see that Jesus literally means hell as a place of punishment after death, after judgment. The second is hell is described as an imagery of fire, darkness, and lamentation. So Matthew 13, 40 to 42, um, the context is that of the parable, the tares and wheat. And if you remember... Um, Jesus paints a picture of a man that plants, uh, wheat. And then, uh, in the evening, we have some individuals that come and plant tares in the field. And Jesus describes how to deal with that situation. So at the end of that parable, um, Jesus explains the meaning to his disciples. And actually, as I was reading, as I was reading this, um, you see, the disciples at the end of this parable, um, they kind of talk among themselves, and, uh, and they say, um, eventually someone asked Jesus what he means. And I thought to myself, like, how many times does this actually happen in scripture, where later, after Jesus says something, disciples are like, hey, did you understand what he meant? <laughs> yeah. And they're like, uh, no. They're like, ask him. No, you ask him. No, you ask him. And so, so I think just when we think about the character of Christ, he was really approachable because, so, like, so many times this happens where the disciples are like, hey, Jesus, like, what did you actually mean by that? Um, but to have someone as wise as Christ and then to have somebody not wise, like the disciples, approach Jesus that many times to say it. I think we see Jesus as a very approachable individual. So Jesus goes on to explain what he meant. <clears throat> Therefore, as the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of this age, the Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all things that offend, and those who practice lawlessness, and will cast them into the furnace of fire, there will be wailing. And gnashing of teeth. So the description here is they've got. we the, Jesus or God gathers ever, all the unbelievers, the t- just like the tares in this parable, uh, puts them together and throws them to be burned, um, giving us imagery of fire. <clears throat> Matthew 13:49 to50, So it will be at the end of the age, the angels will come forth, separate the wicked from among the just 50 and cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. So the context in this passage is uh, the parable of the dragnet, where the net is thrown to the sea and then gathered up and everything that's bad or useless is thrown out of the net and cast away so we see the picture here of of basically thrown into an abyss matthew 5 29 to 30 Uh, we read a very similar passage. If your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. It is better for you to enter into life lame or maimed rather than having two hands or two feet to be cast into the everlasting fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. It is better for you to enter into life with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hellfire. So on two separate occasions, Christ se- Christ stresses that the Physical pain from self-mutilation is rather to be desired than being cast into hell, being cast into a fiery abyss. And then Matthew 22:13, Then the king said to the servants, Bind him hand and foot, take him away, and cast him into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So the context here is, uh, if you remember, Jesus talks about the, the wedding feast. That's compared to the kingdom of God. And he gives very specific instructions how the attendees of that feast are to be dressed. And someone shows up not dressed or not prepared how they're supposed to be prepared. And Christ is quite adamant um about how that individual is to be treated, um, to be cast into hellfire, and where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. So what we see is that hell is a never-ending judgment, <clears throat> as the third aspect of hell. <clears throat> Matthew 25, 41. Then he will also say to those that left him, Depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. So the scene here is that of Judgment Day, when all nations are gathered around the throne again. (laughs) And the punishment here, uh, it's being likened to that that is prepared for the devil and his demons. And we know from Revelation 20.10 that this punishment for the devil and his demons, uh, it's everlasting. I'll read Revelation 20.10. The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So, the parallel here is that, um, and we'll talk about this later, about the idea of a never-ending judgment, but the parallel here is that uh, the devil and his angels are to be thrown into hell uh, for an eternity. And the same is for those that are also thrown into hell as an everlasting judgment. Matthew 25, 46, And these will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous... Into eternal life. So, uh, from the passage we read earlier, the context here is that um, the unbelievers are asking why they're damned to hell uh, during Judgment Day. And Jesus parallels. the eternal destruction here with eternal life. I'll read it again. And these will go away into everlasting punishment, the ones that are damned to hell, um, but the righteous into eternal life. So we're seeing here that he's describing the righteous going on to heaven to be with him forever, uh, but paralleling that with those uh, that will go away into everlasting punishment. So from what we see Jesus teaching, uh, we can almost see that hell is the logical con- consequence of a life lived separated from God. See, ultimately, it's it's God's justice that is our demise when it comes to our eternity. Uh, the God is a perfect and just judge; He has to condemn sin and not overlook it. Unfortunately, to our demise. So God gives opportunities of repentance multiple times to us, um, and he doesn't owe us a second chance. We have, there, there are multiple, multiple opportunities uh, through our life that we can repent to Christ. And then oftentimes we fool ourselves into thinking that morally, uh, we're pretty good people, um, but from a moral perspective, we have more in common with convicts and criminals than we do with Jesus Christ himself. So ultimately, hell is a logical consequence of a life lived separated from God. Moving on from what Jesus said, let's look at what what we have today. We have three... High level uh, contemporary views of what hell is. The first is that of universalism. This is the idea that ultimately all people will be saved. So ultimately, God will restore the creation of perfect harmony. Eternal punishment contradicts the love of God, since God wills the salvation of all and has the power to overcome sin and evil. And if there is a hell, it's not eternal. Punishment is temporary and remedial, leading the sinner towards repentance and union with God. But what we see from Jesus' teaching um, is that Jesus Jesus judges the unbelievers with eternal separation from himself. Again, there are no second chances for repentance, and Jesus clearly describes an eternity of torment. So, when we look at a view of universalism, um, we, don't, we, don't see, we don't see that all people are eventually going to be saved. <clears throat> the second view is that of annihilationism. And basically, this is, this is the idea that punishment is only going to be temporary. So, uh, you know, of course, there, there may be a hell, but ultimately, uh, the person, the individual in hell will be consumed and then there's no longer suffering anymore. So the human soul is not naturally immortal. Eternal existence is a gift of God to the redeemed. The unrepentant will be punished, but the period of punishment is, is temporary. And then at the final resurrection, uh, the unrepentant um, will basically be destroyed and cease to exist. Um, And then it kind of gives the idea of the fire that is talked about in hell is uh, more of the idea of a consuming fire, um, ceasing that person to exist, than that of a tormenting fire. And then there's an idea of a second chance as well. So there's a second chance of repentance uh, for those to accept or reject God again. But from what Jesus said, uh, we know that um, Jesus judges unbelievers with eternal separation from himself. There's not a second chance. Um, again, Jesus describes an eternity of torment. Um, and then again, Jesus is describing a literal place of punishment after death. And then there's the traditional view of of hell, which um, is a literal interpretation, which here at church is the view that we would strive for, and uh, this is the idea that um, what I think most people in this room will believe is that, uh, that there are some people that will not be saved, um, and that every person is judged uh once and all for their death or for uh for their choice in life to live separated from christ um and they're given either eternal life or eternal condemnation um and then um hell hell is a place of eternal torment um apart from christ uh and then Um, contrary to the other uh, beliefs, is that uh, this is a permanent place that uh, there's no exit from hell. Um, It's an eternity without Christ. Now, after seeing these views and after seeing what, um, what Jesus Jesus teaches about hell, uh, lots of questions can be posed. And um, even in, again in my ignorance from my conversation last night, um, it, there are so many questions that are being thought of um, that I've never even considered before. But one of the strongest ones is okay, we, you know, we see that God, of course, is just. We understand that. Um, we can accept his justice, of course, um, we understand that God is all-loving, but how is it possible that God, who is so loving, um, can still send people to hell uh, for an eternity of torture? Like, that seems pretty heavy. How do we address that uh, as God being loving so the question is is God loving in spite of hell existing so a few things we need to consider is that God defines love he is love Um, and our standards of love what we think uh, is as love um, does not often line up with what God defines love is so we don't really have the license to define love according to our own standards. Um, we often have the idea that uh, love is making everybody happy. Um, but in order for that to happen, uh, from God's perspective, uh, there's no way that hell could actually exist if love was just making everybody happy. Um, hell would be completely be incompatible with God's love. Um, since love is a part of God and God defines love um, God does not have to save everyone for himself to show love Um, so though God may uh, not though God's love standard may not line up with our love standard um, certainly it doesn't mean that he's unloving yes um, one of the things that I often think about this is because I think most Christians would agree that if we could be wrong about a doctrine, it would be this one—that we we prefer hell not exist. But uh, I think the problem is um, that makes us think that we're more loving than God. That because we're so loving, we would remove the existence of hell but I, I really think the problem comes down to the fact that we're just so much less holy than God. And we're definitely not more loving than God. We just don't understand the symbolism of sin. Mm-hmm. And we're so much less holy than God that for us, sin doesn't seem like the big deal of day. Yeah, really great point. Um, we we strive so hard to try to understand everything that God gives us where i think ultimately we just sometimes we just have to take take a step back and realize that we really don't understand it all but God in his sovereignty does understand it all and has a much bigger purpose than than we do great point Dan. yeah um the problem is not that god doesn't love us The problem is we don't love him because he did everything and more so that everybody in this whole universe could be saved. But they don't love God enough to accept his gift. So it's them that doesn't love, not God. Yeah, really good point. He gave the ultimate sacrifice, right? Showed the ultimate love. That it took. Mm -hmm. And and then it goes back to kind of our... our, uh, our misunderstanding of okay we do understand that god is love but how, like how does it mesh with an eternity of torment like how how does god send people to hell um, he doesn't. They send their own self. There. It's it's a good point because um, they're rowing their own canoe, like my father-in-law used to <laughs> rowing their own canoe. <laughs> um, it's a really good point. God God gives us ultimately multiple opportunities to to repent to Him, right? And by us not accepting that is choosing a fate apart from Christ and forever. Um. And then we also see the idea that, uh, that love, um, exists with respect to all of God's other attributes. Uh, so we see that God is love, but he's also holy and just. Um, we see quite often all through scripture that God frequently pours out his wrath towards sin, right? But sometimes we see that God withholds certain attributes in order to exercise others, like he withholds his justice while exhibiting grace. Um, so we have to keep in mind that the love of God also exists with respect to his other attributes. And then also we have to keep in mind um, of God's freedom and his sovereignty as well. So God's freedom to, to do... uh what he sees is best, um, he's not compelled to do anything based on our standards at all. And too often we just expect God based on what we think and believe to just to do what, uh, what we want him to, um, he's really compelled by no one. Uh, and then we have this assumption that, um, God can't be loving, uh, unless he saves everyone. Um, but by assuming this, uh, we're kind of saying, God, we're much smarter than you. Um, and this is ultimately violating God's own freedom and sovereignty. So we need to understand that, um, God's love is in light of his own freedom and sovereignty. What we kind of alluded to already, um, and it's, it's mentioned in Isaiah, um, but, really what we're called to do is uh, just embrace God's word, bow the knee, and tremble at his word. If we can focus our life on uh, living and pursuing Christ, pursuing his word, um, these questions that we have specifically about hell today, um, it, it causes us to reflect back on Christ and what he wants for us and how we should live our lives today. So, Jesus speaks of hell as a very horrifying place, um, characterized by suffering, by darkness, by lamentation, by wailing. But God never asked us to figure out his justice or to see if what he's doing is actually morally right. I'll go back to this. Um, All we're asked to do is just focus on God's word and, and do what he tells us to do every single day. So, it, the thought of hell, as we've seen, it's quite paralyzing, right? Like, we see pain, we see torment, we, de- we see torture. Um, like how do we deal with this? Uh, you know, we see this fiery place of torment. What do we do with this? Um, how do we go on living our life as usual, day by day? But that's the point, right? The point isn't. We continue leaving day by day, just as every other day, in light of this heavy subject of hell. This topic, as we said at the beginning, it needs to change us, right? We're not, we're not to carry on life as usual. Um, this, this should urge us to be passionate for the gospel and the sharing of the gospel, and we shouldn't be just trying to cope with this idea of hell. Um, we should really strive to live differently in light of it. And I think that is the point of trying to uh, understand uh, these topics that are eventually going to happen uh, anyway. Um, as Ken alluded to in what I think so often is why do we spend so much time studying things um, when it's going to happen anyway. But if we can strive to understand them it, it can drive us to ultimately share the gospel of Christ and change us as well. And that, that really is the point. Right? We can have all this knowledge packed in our brains, but unless it changes us and molds us to be more like Christ, it really doesn't matter. There's no point. There is no point whatsoever to having knowledge packed in your brain. So I'm going to leave you with words from Deuteronomy and this is it I call heaven and earth as witnesses today against you that I have set before you life and death blessing and cursing therefore choose life that both you and your descendants may live God gives us this description of hell Um, he also gives us description of eternal life and how to be with him forever so he's urging us he's pleading with us choose life so that you and your descendants may live. And so as we leave from here, may the the doctrine of hell, may the teaching that Christ gives us, may it ultimately change us and drive us to be more like him and share the gospel.